Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, Episode 50 for July 27, 2006. Introduction to Virtualization. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. We're hitting the half century mark, ladies and gentlemen. Episode 50 of Security Now. Steve Gibson. It's good to have you on again. Can you believe it? We've made to 50 episodes. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't feel like a year ago that we began. No. Is is it exactly? I guess it's... uh, Have we taken any time off? Nope. No. So we still have two weeks to go for our anniversary. Yep. It is hard, hard to believe, and 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 as 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 you mentioned several times, we weren't sure there was enough material. <laughs> little did we, <laughs> little did we know, there's plenty of material. Yeah, there is. Well, and we get so many great feedback from our from our users. I've got you know questions coming out my ears. So in fact, at, at some point, I'm feeling like. We're falling behind with our Q and A stuff. We may just switch to a, a you know, a, a, yeah. and and we get such great feedback from the Q and A episodes. Uh, people really enjoy the, the 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 breadth of topics that we cover in one hour or however long it ends up being. So we may end up just do a you know may maybe switch from mod four to mod one for a while and do a, and catch do up. some catch up. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Speaking of emails, we got one from Randall Schwartz, who is a. A good friend, the author of Learning Pearl, a Geek Cruise guy, and he listens to the show avidly. And because he's very active in the security community, he's kind of a great uh, um, guy to have listen and get, get his notes to us. And he made a note, which is something I had never heard of, but he just wanted to point it out, is that, you know, I was saying that uh, IP address or uh, ports above 1,024 were, accept, you know, non-canonical and that the 1,024 and below were the kind of traditionally accepted ports. He said... Uh, actually, uh, it, it's from 1,000 to 1,024 is also considered. Uh, what did he say? It's because some people use decimal and some people use binary. That you, you have to be it's careful. It's interesting. It, it, it did sound like that. It sounded like it, it was the the classic difference between a K. Is, right. is a K actually one zero zero zero, or is it you know a binary K at at ten twenty four? So if you want to use a canonical port, if you want to use an official port, the safest procedure is not to use something between one thousand and one thousand twenty four, but to use something below one thousand. Then well, you're I sure can, that everybody will see that as a canonical port. Yeah, I can definitely. I mean, definitely tell you that my experience has been 1024. That's where it's at 1024 that machines begin right. to assign ephemeral ports. Right. The, the the you know the, the ones that that clients are generally being being given. So it may be it may be some older or oddball software, but it's just something to be aware of. And we just I'm glad Randall's listening because he's he keeps us honest. Yeah. So what are we covering this week, Mr. G? Well, this is the beginning of a multi-week series on virtual machine technology, um, VM, virtual machines. That's very hot right now because uh, Intel's touting it, all their new core chips support it in hardware. And, uh, of course, but there's program software like VMware has been around for a while. Microsoft's own virtual PC uses it, right? Yeah, well, I wanted. I want to clarify and demystify that. What's really interesting is that VM began forty years ago um, in nineteen sixty 
um, IBM had VM360, which was a virtual machine technology for the original IBM 360 machine. So, so the, this notion of virtual machines is not new. Uh, in fact, it's 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 old, and um, it was something uh, it, that big mainframes always could do. Well, exactly, and it, then it sort of went away in the 80s and 90s. Now we're seeing a resurgence of the technology for for very different reasons. And as often happens, you know, the 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 capability of our hardware has grown so much that things that weren't possible or practical before have now become possible and practical. You know, so we've got super fast machines, we've got much more RAM than we used to have in machines, and we've got massive hard drives, which have enabled this notion of sort of a machine within a machine. Why don't you, why don't you explain what virtualization is, and then we can talk about, there, there's, a real, there's a reason we're talking about this on security now. There's a real security use for this. But, but first of all, what is virtualization? Well, yes, and, and, and for that reason I wanted to really lay, a, 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 as I always like to do, a firm foundation of definitions and understanding so that we have some jargon that we can refer to and that later when I say, you know, this really works for security, there'll be a reason for understanding why it is that it really works for security rather than just going, oh, okay, I hope that works. Um, okay. the, the, the whole notion of, of virtualization is, is the idea of some sort of a layer. Um, layers come in many shapes and sizes. Um, the, 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 the most common, perhaps, notion of virtualization is one flavor of it called emulation, where you've got, a, for example, a computer running an emulator which is which is inherently pretending to be something else. In in other words, there you say that you had. Well, in fact, I, I guess the Mac has done this when they moved from one chip to another. Wasn't there an emulation of of um, right. of of one family of chips on another? That's exactly right. They they uh, were able to run. The uh, old well, they're doing it right now, of course, with the Rosetta technology, which over on the Intel, on the platform, Intel platform, they're they're emulating the uh, the PowerPC chip. Yeah, and and so that's actually a virtual machine. I mean, by definition, it's like a virtual chip. The the software running the the older Mac, you know, G four G five PowerPC software doesn't know that it's not being executed by a power PC. Now, in they've fact, also, in a way, done this uh, with operating systems. When they went from OS 9 to OS 10, they r- were able to continue to support OS 9 software by running OS 9 in a machine. So it doesn't have to just be emulating another chip. It could be emulating another environment, right? Well, absolutely. And in fact, you may remember the very w- one of the very earlier popularizations in, in, in the PC industry, you know, stepping way forward from IBM doing this with VM360 back in the early 60s, there was something called UCSD Pascal. Oh, yeah. UCSD Pascal uh, was based on what was called a P machine, P as in pseudo, a, a pseudo machine. UCSD Pascal compiled it's it's it was a Pascal compiler that accepted Pascal source code. It compiled it into a into a virtual machine that never existed. They literally they wrote up a specification for like okay if we had a computer 
uh, like, like so, sort of a, a pseudo chip that executed these instructions, it would be really good for for just implementing this language, this Pascal language. And actually, there was even a Fortran compiler that that compiled the same pseudo machine, the same P same machine. P code, yeah, the, the yeah. same P machine. And so the idea was, if you wanted to run UCSD Pascal on like on an Apple II, you would create a P machine interpreter. You would you would create a an interpreter, an emulator for this this virtual chip that no one ever actually made, and and then all the software that means suddenly all the software that had been written for this UCSD Pascal was was running all at once on this new chip only by creating this emulation layer or this virtualization layer this that, this virtual machine that's how java works well yes exactly i was just going to say that then there was also fourth fourth was a wacky language um which was based on the same sort of pseudo machine or p machine technology which made it very easy to port from from one chip to another um sun microsystems the java virtual machine is the same thing if you have a java runtime what the java runtime does is is it is basically a virtual machine that that jo- compiled java code is is run against so it, it's in that case it's the java virtual machine is interpreting the instructions uh, that, that have been compiled down in in into the the compiled java to do the actual work unless you think this is old hat in fact that's how perl 6 the next generation of perl is being developed they're they're developing first a virtual machine called parrot which will run not only perl 6 but a variety of other languages and it even goes back to, and I know you remember this, Steve, but you'd have to be an oldster to remember, DeskView under DOS, which allowed you to run multiple uh, environments at the same time. You remember DeskView? Oh, yeah. And in fact, we talked about it briefly when we were talking about um, memory management, and we're, we're going right. to be talking about that in a few minutes, as a matter of fact. Yeah. And then, but one last example of contemporary virtual machine, which... which Certainly, Windows users are beginning to see Microsoft initiated a, a, a strong move that they call .NET. This whole Microsoft.NET framework is a, they, they created a, what they call a CLI specification, a common language infrastructure. And then there's a, something called the CLR, which is the common language runtime. And Microsoft succeeded, along with Hewlett-Packard and Intel, of getting um, ECMA and ISO standardization. So even now, there is still new technology that, that, is, that is just based on software virtualization, software virtual machines that are being used for, for like hosting multiple languages. And exactly as you said, Leo, the, 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 the future of Perl is moving in this direction as well. I think this is fascinating. So, and, and in the past, I think the, the rap against things like uh, P-Code and even Java to some extent was that that virtualization slowed it down. But I think because of hardware support, it's, it's really not much of a penalty anymore. Well, actually, there are two different very two very different types of virtualization there is emulation like we were talking about and then there is exactly as you were saying hardware assisted virtualization and that's the key for security because 
because, um, well, I, I guess I shouldn't say that completely because, of course, Java was created to create a secure sandbox so that Java applications because they were being emulated, the, 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 the code itself is not running on the actual hardware. It's not actually being executed by the Intel chip. We've talked, for example, about how stack overruns are able to, to allow um, a program's code to be executed by the chip itself. Well, in an, in an interpreted environment, you're not running on the hardware. You're, you're like one level removed, and your code is being interpreted by some other software. If it's written correctly, and that's the Achilles heel in any software-based scheme, if it's written correctly, we know how difficult it is for that simple phrase, if it's written correctly, to end up being actually true in the real world. Because in theory, then, the emulator could prevent any, any sandboxed code from, doing, from ever having the ability to do anything dangerous. In reality, it's, it's very hard to write these things correctly, and we end up with, with software layers, and as we've seen before, the opportunity for, for some sort of trouble. So... Uh... When you say emulation, you were talking about, for instance, the Apple uh, emulation of the old G5 processor in Intel. That's that's yes. that's or, one well, way. And, and and for example, one of the things that killed off the UCSD Pascal. UCSD Pascal was going strong. It was a great solution. It was multi-platform. I mean, I remember uh, using it on the Apple II. What came along? Some guy named Philippe Kahn. <laughs> and native. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Philippe Kahn had Turbo, Bor- Borland International Turbo released Turbo Pascal, yeah. and it just blew UCSD Pascal into history almost overnight. First of all, it was, it was less expensive, but it, was, bucks. Bl- <laughs> it was blindingly yeah. fast. Yeah. Well, actually, that's the thing that started the big war between Philippe and Bill Gates was, you know, Bill was selling languages for many, I think like four ninety nine, five hundred dollars at the time, and Philippe came along and thumbed his nose at oh. Microsoft and said, "Ah, here's here's a really good Pascal compiler for forty bucks." I loved Turbo Pascal. Oh, well, great and it was screamingly fast. It compiled because, instantly. Instantly, yeah, it compiled to native native machine language, not to P code, which then had to run through a layer of emulation. And, and the reason we're spending so much time talking about this is, 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 is it is critical to understand where the costs of virtual machine technology comes in and virtualization. Inherently, there's something added, something extra added to the system to create the, this, this layer of protection, the sandbox, the virtualization. It has to do and, more work. Yes, some well, and it depends upon whether it's really being done in and by the hardware or in and by the software. What we've talked about so far is all software emulation and software virtualization, which is very expensive in terms of performance. Now, with chips getting faster and 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 memory becoming abundant, that's less a problem. On the other hand, when you don't have virtualization, you're faster. Who doesn't want to be faster? No matter how fast your chip is, not having a, a, something that's slowing you down is always a better thing. 
which of course is why you know the Mac apps are rapidly being recompiled into native Intel code as as the Macintosh switches from the PowerPC platform over to the Intel platform, and you're going to get you know much better performance that way. Right. Right. So, so historically, what happened is Intel made some advances to their chipset. The the of course the original PC was hosted on the 8086 which was a sort of a 8-bit 16-bit hybrid chip it had a 16-bit chipset chips uh 16-bit instruction set but an 8-bit bus and the whereas the 8088 was 8-bit all the way um the 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 change came for the first time with the Intel 8286 which added something in the hardware, which radically complicated the chip. I mean, it went from a, a, a small chip that an instruction set that anyone could understand to something that re- began to be really complicated. It added the so-called protected mode. Protected mode, as opposed to real mode, which was what which was actually named after the fact because that's what chips always were before. Although, so they had no mode; they were just there um protected mode adds a whole bunch of hardware to the chip which which begins to create this notion of interprocess isolation rather than all of the programs running in the system sort of sharing memory at once protected mode protected programs from each other it really began to create the notion of a of a real operating system remember that dos was sometimes criticized for just how lame it was i mean that it was basically just sort of a program loader the pile it, with all these programs and uh, running against yeah, each I, other and, oh. i'm just pissed off that the that, that the slashes go the wrong way in dos <laughs> Because I'm still problem. I'm still doing it wrong. I'm yeah. never gonna 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 shake that bad U- habit. Unix uses forward slashes, and DOS wants backward slashes for reasons no one understood. Uh, yeah, well, just to be different, or who knows? Yes. Anyway, so so we really didn't get the hardware we needed from the 286, and it wasn't until the 386 came along that Intel added enough features to basically create virtual machine technology in the hardware. And this was a huge jump for the industry. And in fact, that's where we got the memory managers, uh, EMM386. QEMM. Yeah. Q, exactly, yeah. QEMM. Yeah. Um, these things, and in fact, my my favorite was Qualitas. Uh, I can't remember what that one was called. It was, uh, Wasn't it that was, QEMM? No, that was Quarter Deck. Quarter Deck, that's right. Quarter Deck was QEMM. And they did Desk QEMM. also. Yeah, Qualitas. Oh, yeah. I think it was. I just think. I think it was uh, EMM three eighty six. Yeah, and these well, would let you use more than six hundred forty kilobytes <laughs> of memory. In fact, even more than a megabyte of memory. Well, yeah. What happened was um, machines at the time were having a real problem with the with the six hundred and forty meg limit. Which is what the PC had. You know, it, it shipped originally with, with with I think you could get it actually with, with with 16 megabytes. Sometimes you would expand it to 64 megabytes, but there was a a physical limitation. In fact, Bill Gates famously said, and we can't really 
fault him for this because it was so long ago that no one could ever possibly need more than 640 megabytes. I have that recording somewhere <laughs> of memory, you know. And in fact, you know but that you know, was that ten- to, to, in his defense. No, I I thought the same thing. It seemed like a lot at the time. Well, you know, and here I am still programming in assembly language. Right. It is a lot. If they would write, if they would write lean mean code like you write, it would be. But nobody does. Well, of course, what happened was machines began to be used for things no one ever envisioned them for. Huge spreadsheets. Graphics. uh, And, of course, media. And huge spreadsheets that just needed more memory. The splash screen on most applications takes up more than 640K. (laughs) It does today, right. So... So so there were several intermediate stages along the way. There was this thing called um, expanded memory and extended memory, wh- oh, which used a oh. bank-swapping approach oh. where you, you'd, you'd have a card with extra chips on it, and then you'd programmatically like swap that memory in so that it was accessible, and then you'd swap it out. Well, what happened with the 386 was that the, the the hardware was so advanced that literally different profiles, different configurations of memory could be shown to applications at any given time. So the first the first memory managers were emulators of this EMM, the expanded memory and extended memory systems, and then they began to grow. And as you said before, Leo, it was it was um, there was top view. Uh, that IBM was working on, and then there was DeskView that that Quarterdeck created, and basically they they were the first people to to begin to move toward using the 386 chip hardware to create hardware virtual machines. 386 Max. That's that's the name. <laughs> Yay! It that just was, came back to me. Yes, Bob Smith at at, at Qualitas. Did and that was a, that was Max. the best program. I used. Uh, we were all QE MMM users until 386 Max came out, and it was like, wow. Well, that, you're you're so right. In fact, a little bit of a, a segue or a, not segue, a, an anecdote. Um, when Microsoft first came out with Windows, it I guess it was three one. Maybe 3.0, cause we had Windows 2 and then, then 3.0. The problem was it only ran with Microsoft's own memory manager. Which was built which, in. You'd run it well, in, in and Big it, Back, back then it was just crappy. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. it had no good options. With, with 386 to the max, you were able to, to, to fill in from high memory into low. There were all these extra features that, that Bob Smith had put in to, to 386 to the max. I mean, and the world loved them. Well, so here comes Windows, and it's like, no, you have to use ours. And it, and it just didn't, I mean, as I said, it just didn't have any of the features that we all wanted. So I was writing my weekly Tech Talk column for InfoWorld at the time, and I, I loved what Microsoft had done for Windows 3.0. But at the, like the last paragraph in the column where I raved about it, I said, but I can't use it. <laughs> because it's not compatible with 3 to 6 of the max and, <laughs> and that's all I'm ever going to use. <laughs> so exactly. So who cares? <laughs> the colors are pretty but oh well. And so then but I said but next week I'm going to talk about Windows 3 some more. So I so next week I talked about other features and talked about how, you know, other cool things blah blah blah, but I said at the end but of the I'm column I'm not going to use it. <laughs> but who cares? You know, no one can really use this thing, this new Windows because it won't run on any good memory manager. 
So I got a call after the second column came out from a wonderful guy at Microsoft, Brad Silverberg. Oh, yeah. Um, He's and still fact, around. Uh, he, well, he left Microsoft quite a while ago. He was originally at Borland and moved over right, right. To, to, to Microsoft. And, and, he, and we had a good relationship. And he, so he calls me up and he says, Steve, would you stop writing <laughs> that you know, Windows is junk unless it runs on some other memory manager? And I, and I said, well, but Brad, it is junk <laughs> unless it will run on, you know, on like a real memory manager. And he said, well, I have Bob Smith here with me in the office. Oh. And he, was on, he was on speakerphone. He said, say hello, Bob. And I heard Bob said, hey, hi, Steve. I said, oh, my goodness. Bob, are, are you there because of why I think you're there, why I hope you're there. And he said, yep. Oh, he said, oh, that's good. And I said, "Are they? have they given you everything you need? Because it was, you know, it's proprietary information. Right, they weren't, right. tell, they wouldn't tell Bob right. how to get 386 of the Macs to run under Windows. And he said, yep, I have everything I need. <laughs> and I said, oh. I said, okay, Brad, uh, look, there's one more column in the pipeline already <clears throat> that you're really not going to like. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, then I will tell people after that. <laughs> that you, you, you've given Bob Smith what he needs and, and that 386 of the Max will soon be Windows 3 compatible. So oh, that's great. So, I mean, it was, those were painful times back then as we were figuring out, you know, what mattered and what was important and how to they make were, all this stuff work. They were good days for geeks because uh, it was it was something you had to figure out. And uh, we shared the information. Now it's just anybody. Yep. Anybody can use a computer now. Eh. Okay, so what is it? Like Dvorak. <laughs> what is it in? What, what is it in the hardware that makes this possible? What Intel added when they went, went with the 386 was the ability to to basically set up a supervisory code somewhere in RAM that could get notified under virtually any condition that was important. Specifically, um, computers or software running in a computer has two fundamental things it can do. It can read and write to memory, and it can read and write to I.O. devices. So it's got I.O. and it's got memory. And what, what Intel's architecture that began in full with the 386 and has continued on, and in fact, the, 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 the thing you mentioned, uh, Leo, about them talking about like next generation stuff, they're going further with this x86 virtualization technology, even before, even beyond what we have today, um, in order to sort of go to the last step, mm -hmm. because Intel has recognized that virtualization is hot and is coming back, you know, gangbusters. And so, that you know, they're also looking for some way to make some more money, because I don't know if you heard, they're really getting beat yeah. up by AMD. Yeah, they sure are, yeah. Anyway, what they added was the ability to trap any attempt by software to access I.O., and to trap any attempt by software to read and write memory. Well, that's, I mean, that's a phenomenal thing. I mean, it's a huge change in the architecture because, you know, the software is supposed to be able to read and write memory. I mean, in order to do what it does, it has to be able 
to do this. And, you know, what good is it unless it can communicate with the outside world, which means it needs to be able to to access and talk to I.O. devices. So so there is a very sophisticated set of of interception hardware essentially there's there's literally a bitmap of that that represents the io addresses so that individual io addresses can be pr- protected and others can be deprotected the the way memory is managed is that there are there are again complete protections and 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 tables called page tables that that allow some some supervisory process to literally control what a less privileged process is able to do and this is all supported by the hardware meaning that there is virtually pardon the pun virtually zero overhead with the, with a program running within this contained or protected mode environment how it is, i mean zero i mean how really come on there's some overhead well you're saying there's very little overhead well there's zero overhead for a program running in that mode there's some overhead when you change programs, overall system wide, change modes. Right. Yes, and, and in fact, there there is also some overhead by if, if this if the program in protected mode needs to call down for services that are running in the operating system. They're called ring transitions in in the in the in the Intel architecture. There are th- there are four rings, zero through three, and. Um, zero being the most highly privileged, ring three being the least privileged. And so there are mechanisms that had to be created to allow the operating system, you know, the, the, the supervisor with, with basically that has responsibility for everything else, it needs to be able to access all of memory and access all of the I.O. and, and to contain programs that are less privileged the, the way these are less privileged is they they run in, a, in what's called ring three which is just an abstraction it's an abstraction in the same way that a, you know a, a port is an abstraction of of a of a of an internet connection mm-hmm. where it's just sort of you you just say this program is running in ring three and programs running in ring three have the following restrictions placed on them. So there is a little bit of overhead switching from ring to ring, but because it's done in hardware, it's virtually instantaneous. Well, yes, it's nothing, nothing like the emulation we were talking about originally, where you've got software that is that is inst- that is executing instructions, you know, and figuring out what each instruction does, and then turning around and doing the equivalent. It is it it basically it allows programs to run at full speed. Until they do something that that not necessarily that they shouldn't, but in something that requires supervisory uh, supervisory oversight. So, so for example, I mean, a, a, a perfect example is running an old DOS program. Um, I mean, DOS programs, as we know, still run in a window in Windows. Uh, you know, a so-called DOS box, or or even that command prompt that we were using before, the the DOS program thinks it is writing to an area of memory. Uh, you know, technically, it's it's B thousand in hex or B eight hundred in hex. There were two pages of uh, and and regions of memory in the old PC and DOS programs 
wrote, actually physically wrote a, a byte of data into a location that represented a cell on the screen. And the display adapter took the contents of that byte, which was an ASCII character, 8-bit ASCII character, and then displayed the the character at that location, at the matching location on the screen. So DOS programs just wrote, were, were able to sort of paint the screen very quickly with text by by directly depositing data into this region of memory. Okay, well, everything has changed since that. You know, we, we don't have... Um, text displays. Now we've got bitmapped graphics displays. You know, with fonts and font sizes and varying resolutions and all this. Yet you can still run an old DOS program in one of these in a DOS box in a in a command prompt, and it still writes to what it thinks is video memory in in, in into this B thousand <laughs> hex region. What happens is the the operating system has set up a trap so that anything that is written by the application in the DOS box is intercepted by the software. The software is able to say, oh, look, isn't that cute? (laughs) DOS thinks it wants to put an A here. And so what the operating system does is turns around, figures out where that is within the window in the bitmapped region, and it it then paints the, 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 the fonted character A that the user has chosen with color and size and everything else. DOS has no idea this is going on. All of that is hidden from it. It thinks it's still running on an old PC, with an actual text display putting text out in the memory when in fact you know that's not remotely true anymore we've got graphics accelerators and nvidia cards with with turbo fans on them and everything else going on <laughs> all all being hidden thanks to this virtualization technology yeah yeah it, now there's some overhead in doing that kind of thing Yes, the, the, the there's an example where you are mapping from a from a text display into a bitmap display and having to do some work. Of course, in this case, our machines are so radically faster. Yeah, these DOS than what, programs didn't that, expect anything like that. Exactly, that, that the result you know still looks instantaneous to us. So, so essentially, what we've got today, and we're going to build on this next week when when we talk about how this technology has been leveraged and, and how it can be, be um, taken further um, is, is we've got an operating system now, every operating system that is, is, is contemporary. I mean, Linux, FreeBSD, the Mac OS, Windows, all of them, they, the first thing they do when they start to boot is they switch the chip from its real mode into protected mode. Real mode is the way all chips, there's one obscure chip somewhere that Intel had. It was an embedded chip that just didn't have real mode. But but all of our chips start life. When you turn the power on, they're in the original 8086 emulation, you know, real mode. And, and that's what the BIOS uses um, uh, 16-bit BIOS to get things going. It loads a sector from the hard drive into memory, execute it. That that bootstrap reads some more sectors to to build up enough code and memory. As the OS gets going, one of the very first things it do it does. One of the very first things it does is it 
it lays out all of the data required by the Intel processor. And there's a lot of, of housekeeping that needs to be done to get this system from real mode into protected mode because it's got a, you know, basically it's making a huge change in the architecture of the chip on the fly. And so it sets all that up, switches the, the chip into protected mode. That's the first time it has access to all the memory in the system. You know, it's still limited until then to the original one megabyte physical barrier of which only 640 was RAM. So as soon as it does that, then it opens up the rest of the system and has access, thanks to being 32 bits, to you know the vast amounts, you know, gigabytes of memory, and and then it loads the rest of the operating system and gets itself going. So all systems today are running in this mode, and they are using features of this hardware th- th- that creates these these virtualization th- that allows processes to be insulated from each other. The problem is, as we've seen, that insulation between processes is is got some holes in it. Permeable. Cre- yes, it is very permeable. As I as I gave the example a couple of weeks ago, the very fact that I can start a debugger and reach over and stop another application and single step it and even inject my own code and make changes that's a problem when you talk about security and uh, we talked about with rootkit uh, rootkit and and rootkits and trojans that are going down and mucking around in in the network stack you know remember that, that last week you asked would the netstat command to show you what's going on in the machine be guaranteed of absolutely always showing everything that is happening? And I said, no, it, it can't because it's sharing a computer with other code. And so theoretically, other code could modify what we think we're seeing. Well, it turns out that, um, and, and as many people know, there are things like VMware and Virtual PC, which is the, the technology that Microsoft bought from somebody, um, which uh, b- begins to create much stronger boundaries and barriers. And these, these things are extremely useful from a security standpoint. And, and we're going to be looking at specific examples of that next week and, and understanding you know, what kinds of security features they offer. Well, I think people are probably starting to get an idea that the virtualization means you can wall off part of your computer from another part of your computer. And I can... what, what, What's exciting is there's still software involved, but it's, it's much more supported and enhanced by the hardware support than is emulation and it is it is much more likely that you as you said leo that you can wall off and you can create truly i mean like provably secure provably impervious containers and and the 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 really cool thing is the idea for example of of creating a virtual machine or a sandbox in which you surf the net. If you do that, and you 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 still have to behave yourself because again, you know, you could download something and drag it out of the sandbox into your the rest of your machine and still get yourself in trouble. So it, it's again, there's no perfect solution that 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 you know can exist, but it can certainly prevent 
malicious things. For example, we were also talking last week about that Windows Metafile vulnerability still being around and infecting maybe as many as a million MySpace users. If those people were surfing in a in a secured virtual machine web browser that had no contact inherently to the rest of their machine. Well, that Windows Metafile vulnerability could infect the virtual machine, but that infection could never get any further. Yeah. And when you when you terminate the virtual machine, any infection is snuffed out at the same time. That's uh, I use a virtual machine to run Windows on my MacBook and. Uh we're going to talk about VMware. We get a lot of email lately, and VMware's done some neat stuff, including offer uh, some stuff for free. And even Microsoft now is offering uh, copies of Virtual PC for free. So there are a lot of free ways that you can do this. So we'll, well, and I think that you know we've talked about how long-running themes of ours in security now will be you know keeping touch with what happens with VPNs and what happens with with you know various like long-term security technologies um, virtual machines is going to end up being in our toolkit uh, because for exactly this reason I think we're just seeing the beginning of this I would imagine a couple years from now there will be a number of competing virtual machine products and these things will be easier and easier to use I agree I, did, I agree yeah I, I did run across one really interesting um, uh, sort of concern. Uh, I haven't had a chance to explore it fully yet. I'll know uh, everything there is to know about it a week from now when we continue with this. But there was a, a researcher did some work on the notion of using virtual machines against us. That is, unfortunately, that power, as is the case with all power, can be turned to the dark side. Oh boy! Um, there's there's something called the blue pill. Oh yeah, the blue pill. Yeah, which of, and that of course refers to our, our friend Neo and the 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 the, the, the Matrix, the, the the movie, the Matrix. There's a security researcher, a woman who does who has the red pill and the blue pill. Yep, <laughs> she's got the red pill. I think is the solution to the blue pill. As exactly, I, as I remember. And the idea is that it is possible to essentially, I mean, exactly, I mean, it's, it's a perfect analogy to the Matrix, where you believe you're in the real world, but in fact, you know, you're in a virtual machine, you're in a virtual world. And this, this idea is, it turns out that due to insecurities that exist in the way our current operating systems have been implemented, and again, there are workarounds for this, and one hopes they will happen soon, um, but due to the way these have been implemented, it is possible to literally take the blue pill, you you run you run this program, and suddenly nothing you see changes. But you are now no longer using your computer. You have just been encapsulated in a virtual machine, and and something going on on the outside of that virtual machine you would have no way of knowing or seeing. And at that point, it is impenetrable. Isn't that interesting? That's just so cool. Well, we'll I mean, talk more I, about this next week because there's, yep, a, there's and again, a lot more all, to say. All enabled by the hardware, which is where this happens with very good speed. And thanks to the 386 that has been evolving ever since, and Intel's still not done. Yep, yep. Qu- quite an amazing thing. Fascinating subject. This has been as much a history lesson as it has been a technology lesson. Um, and I hope you've enjoyed it. We're glad you uh, listened in. And we want to remind you, when it comes to security, one name jumps to uh, the mind 
That is Astaro Corporation, our fabulous sponsor, making this podcast possible. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. They're the makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. If your small or medium business network needs superior protection from spam, from viruses, from hackers, as well as complete VPN capabilities, plus intrusion protection and content filtering and, and an industrial strength firewall, the Astaro Gateways do it all. It's really a remarkable, easy to use, high performance appliance. I've got 120 here. Uh, and it, I just, it's uh, remarkable what it can do. Contact Astaro, A S T A R O dot com. You can schedule a free trial or call 877 Astaro, toll free, for a, a trial of the ASG, the Astaro Gateway Appliance, in your business. And by the way, uh, non commercial users can download the software for free for home at ASTARO.com. You can run it on any PC because it's really just a Linux, a form of Linux distribution. And then what's cool, I think it's 79 euros a year. Uh, you can subscribe to their updates and get the spam filtering, the content filtering, the antivirus, the firewall, all this stuff running on this thing. So if you want to build a very inexpensive, very powerful gateway as an end user, this is a great solution too. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. And I think uh, we should mention GRC.com, don't you, Steve? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's where all this comes from. <laughs> yeah, Astaro may sponsor us, but GRC sponsors everything Steve does. Of course, it's his company, the great company that gives you spin right, among all the other wonderful things GRC.com does. Uh, if, if you have a disk, and who doesn't, a hard drive, you need spin right, the ultimate disk recovery and maintenance utility. If it can be recovered in software, Spinrite can do it. There is no better program in yeah, the world. It, it does routinely perform miracles. Uh, p- people can go to spinrite.info and read some of the unsolicited, you know, actually they're love letters that we get it's back. So people saying, yeah. thank you, thank you, thank you, and, and telling their stories. It's, I just, I love getting those. It's kind of, you know, it's, it's, Steve, it's kind of neat because... Essentially, you know, you had a big company with hundreds of employees in a big building and you pared it down and you've got your focus now. It's very simple in his life. Security and spin right. Yeah. And, and that's it. And, and you're doing what you love and you're giving everybody just a, a really great product and great information. So it's well, and spin rights owners are really the sponsors of security now. From, yeah. From, absolutely. from my end. Always yeah. have been. Yeah. Hey, thank you, Steve. Um, we will talk again next week for more uh, information about what we've talked about. Links show notes and all of that stuff. There are two places to go. Of course, Steve's site is grc.com slash security now. He also hosts a transcript there. This would be a good one, I think, to get a transcript of. And I know Elaine's typing like crazy as we speak. Uh, But you can also get a 16-kilobit version, uh, easier download if you're on dial-up. And uh, there's a great forum there where people discuss the security topics Steve raises. I'm glad you reminded me of that. um, We have a news server and anyone who who has a um, a news reader uh, most people have that built into their browser can can go to news.grc.com and we do have a security now news group which is constant i mean it's a it's a great place to to discuss uh topics of of the show and also ask questions there's a lot there's just i don't know we have hundreds of really good people who hang out in our in our GRC forums. And I'm going to try to be a little bit better on twit.tv now that we kind of have a GRC, you know, a, a security now page on there to put more information and more links in there instead of just shoveling, shoveling you over to uh, Steve. 
Uh, ultimately, of course, there's always a link to Steve there, and that's really the place to go for the definitive stuff. But just things like, you know, a Wikipedia article about 386 Max, that kind of stuff. I'll start putting some of that stuff in the show notes at twit.tv because I know that people are looking for that stuff too. Well, Steve, we have uh, we have really started an interesting topic. I have one more question for you, and please don't yell at me. But uh, somebody asked me, is the VPN stuff still in progress? What's going on there? Yes, it is still in progress. Um, I feel bad. I'm not trying to guilt you. I just Yeah, I've got about 20 pages to find. The problem was that I literally didn't have anywhere to put it. You know, GRC has been growing over time by my just adding stuff and adding stuff and adding stuff. And um, I, I decided I really wanted to deal with third-party cookies. That is the issue of sort of bringing that back to people's attention, which you and I will be talking about once I get that online. And 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 then the open VPN stuff is, I mean, it's absolutely going to happen. The problem is that my site has never had any navigation or you know or, or menuing or anything. I, mean, I just I just haven't had any. Well, you just and put I pages fi- up, and eventually, you, 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 the more you get on there, the more you need navigation. And yes, and and I mean, people who love the work that GRC has done over the years, professional web designers, write to me and say, Steve, you know, uh, wow, you hand, <laughs> uh, what's the problem? And you're so like me. You I do, do it all I, yourself. I, I, well, and I, 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 I've, I've wanted to understand what CSS is, cascading style sheets, and I wanted to do a menuing system. See, the problem is if I had anybody else do it, they'd come along with some JavaScript blob that was spit out by some web authoring tool. And, I mean, i just look at it and shudder. It would be nothing that I could use. So for the last month and a half, I guess, I've been working with CSS. I have now, and, and actually all of this has been done in public view in our news groups, in the news.feedback forum we have there. Um, we've got a menu system now running, no scripting, pure CSS. It runs on every browser. Um, there, actually, there's nothing like it on the web. I've ended up developing some very cool technology to allow zero scripting, pure CSS, beautiful hierarchical menus. So that'll be appearing shortly. Then, um, then I'll be going. I'll be finishing up the work I was doing on cookies. Then I'm going to finish up the Open VPN stuff. So okay. I mean, I I know people are waiting for it and anxious. Um, I only want to do it once, and I want to do it right. So that and I just had nowhere to put it it's on the on site. The pun- it was like it's on the punch list. Steve was yep, working on it. That's, it is. That's all we can. All we can say, and Mr. G works at his own pace on his own stuff, and that's why we love him. Uh, you should read Dvorak's column on CSS, by the way, uh, online and uh, PCMagazine.com this week. I think you'll enjoy it, Steve. Oh. <laughs> he, he's basically saying the same thing you're saying. I don't know if you've been talking together, but he's, he agrees with you. Uh, and he's not coming to it as a programmer. I mean, he's just trying to observe what's happening in the world, and it's just obviously a problem. We get we had a, we have very good designers working on Twit.tv, and they did a very nice job. And I don't believe they there is JavaScript on there, but I don't believe they use any JavaScript for the navigation stuff. Well, yeah, here I am preaching not having scripting. So you know, how you can I re- right. how could I require scripting right. on GRC? And uh, the other thing is, I certainly didn't want to since scripting is lowering your security. I it would be bizarre for me to say oh you have to lower your security right, to right. come to my security site no i agree with you i agree with so, you 100 the only no scripting we have is for the flash player uh, on the site and it's just a, it's a it's a way frankly of handling uh the eolus patent issue that's happened to microsoft's internet explorer you can't embed 
multimedia objects anymore in a simple one-click fashion. So we have a little JavaScript. Well, and most menus are generally JavaScript. They, they they will still function maybe in a crippled fashion, but you need to turn scripting on in order to like to get a a next level drop down to right. work. Well, as and you've I've learned, got, you can do it in CSS. It's just oh, a little bit. Yeah, of yeah, it's yeah. All right, Steve. Hey, it's a real pleasure. We will talk again next week. I'm off for Toronto. Uh, to do uh, my uh, TV show, Call for Help. But uh, we'll be back next week to talk more. And you're going to come to Toronto next month, right? You're, yep. You're putting it off this month. It's a little yep. muggy there. I don't think you want to go this <laughs> Yeah, I don't do well <laughs> in, in, in humidity. All right, Steve. We'll talk again uh, next Thanks, week. Thanks, Leo. On Thank Security you. Now. Security Now.